Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of Enforce technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by Enforce technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. All right. Well, let's start like we always start, everybody. I want to welcome everybody to the podcast. And we truly, truly appreciate your support and uh, all the downloads that we've had over the, over this time frame. I don't know how long we've been doing it now, but it's been really, really good. Super excited about what we're uh, doing today and who we have on the show. But as always, we'll start off with the base introductions of myself and everybody involved here. So as always, I'm Todd Edwards. Um, been uh, in the fire service, and I'm not going to give an exact number of years because then I'll have to hear it from Roed forever. But it's over 40. Uh, <laughs> uh, 31 of those being with the city of Atlanta. I now am fortunate and very blessed to uh, teach throughout the country, uh, teach with Roeg, teach with our guests on occasion, uh, and be in some, just be around some incredible people in the American Fire Service. So I'll let my host, or I'm sorry, my, uh, the uh, host of the show or our other podcaster, uh, Rowett, if you introduce yourself, uh, Chief. Anthony. Yeah, Anthony Rowett. I'm a captain with uh, Mobile, Alabama's Fire Department. Been here almost 15 years and three years as a volunteer in northern New Jersey before that. Uh, kind of like Todd, very lucky and fortunate to get to travel the country teaching and making friends uh, throughout the fire service and learning from everybody uh, and getting to teach with guys like Todd and who we have on the show tonight. Awesome. Well, let me, I'm not, I don't do the introduction of the guests. I always like our guests to introduce themselves. Um, he's going to bring a unbelievable wealth of, and again, there's a lot of knowledge out there in books, but this guy's bringing true life down and dirty experience to this conversation. I, so if you could, Jimmy, introduce yourself to everybody. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, Todd and Anthony, thank you for having me. Uh, first and foremost, I couldn't speak think of a better way to spend my my morning here with you guys as well um and kudos to what you guys are doing so quickly about myself uh chicago fire department captain engine 43 which is the uh the logan square area and our district uh, is going to be pretty much comprised of our topic today dealing with uh mid-rise buildings which are popping up everywhere uh so it, it's great to break Spread with you guys and, and sprinkle in some some mid-rise discussion here and some mid-rise debate. Looking forward to it. Awesome, yeah, and I, and I, I think uh, I think people that have not had the privilege of being in a class uh, 
uh, with Jimmy. Um, you know, if you see this man about out and about, whether it's FDIC or any of those things, take advantage of this. Uh, it's uh, truly a blessing to have him on our show this evening. So I do want to start with something uh, real quickly. And I think it's important that we start this conversation off with. And like Jimmy said, we're going to be talking about mid-rise, high-rise, from standpipe pop But let me ensure you guys who are like, oh, I'm, I don't want to listen to this. We're not going to get into pounds per square inch of water, nothing crazy mm-hmm. like that. We really want to delve into what any fire department with a three-station organization or a hundred-station organization can manage, handle, and some things they can do to be successful in these operations. But uh, I want our guests, um, obviously, I think everybody in the fire service is aware that Chicago had just a, a, a tragic uh, series of events where they had back-to-back line-of-duty deaths and one involving at a uh, high-rise incident. And uh, I'm not going to speak to that because I wasn't part of that, but I would like our guest, uh, uh, Captain, if you could kind of speak on that uh, to the best you can of what you're allowed to speak on. Yeah, Ted, I'd be more than happy to. It's a pleasure that everything that we talk about or even tragic losses is a very, very good experience to talk about lessons learned and to convey that message uh, of what was learned. So we this month, earlier this month, we lost a, uh, a lieutenant on Tower uh, 10 uh, on a high-rise fire at 1212 uh, North Lakeshore Drive. It was one of those pre-1975 buildings. So when we talk about that, those are pre-ordinance buildings. They kind of fall under the no-man's land when it comes to fire, life, safety, and building codes. So in other words, that this building was already stacked against us. It wasn't working in our favor just by the very nature of it. Uh, so fast forward to what happened here. To, uh, they received a call for a reported fire, but on arrival, all right, th- there was nothing showing. The uh, the alarm panel had nothing indicated as as well. And then into this incident, uh, the occupant uh, of the 27th floor on her unit, she came down in the elevator. She says, you know what, guys, my apartment is on fire. All right, so we talked about all that that very valuable primary reflex time that has been aided and already. They had a ripper and fire up there. Um, into this is when they made them, uh, they ascended into this, you know, the, the belly of this building uh, via the elevators. Uh, you're talking some really lights out conditions. Uh, the fire experienced some very prominent reverse stack effect. Remember that this fire was burning for a good 20 minutes. Uh, prior to our notification and us getting up there. So these guys did a valiant effort uh, in, in doing so. Uh, this unit that was on fire was every bit of about 2,500 square foot. Huge, huge building. Um, our lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Tordak, uh, he had succumbed to his injuries during the fire suppression. Uh, they had found him in cardiac arrest. Also at that fire, there was multiple meetings. Uh, this was, if you picture in your mind, trying to operate and establish a foothold or a grip hold on a high-rise fire when you have no visibility. Your standpipe connection is in zero visibility. Accountability for all your firemen, zero visibility. Um, so again, to reiterate, everything that could go wrong did go wrong um but you only hear these high-rise fires when things go wrong 
Uh, we go to a lot of high-rise fires. It doesn't make the news, you know. Uh, but in that case, it definitely it made the news. Uh, it is most likely uh, the cause of death to that was uh, due to cardiac arrest. You know, elevation firefighting, hiking upstairs, working back and forth on a fire floor, man, is that taxing on your cardiovascular system, you know. So we are all still trying to process that. Uh, we are all in a point of healing. And again, what we want to do is use this as a learning experience and the lessons learned um, on the fire. But it still is under investigation in the end. I just wanted to really you know, do a topical uh, discussion on it. Uh, but there are things that uh, will be revealed later uh, as we dig deeper into uh, you know, what happened that day. I think we'd all like to know and the entire fire service as well. Yeah, and, and kudos to Chicago for immediately starting that process of getting information out that, uh, you know, obviously benefits the members. And, you know, uh, I'm sure uh, Anthony will say the same thing. Our condolences to obviously yourself and the entire Chicago Fire Department. Uh, that was just an unbelievable, you know, two days uh, that you guys went through and um, I don't think any fire department ever sits back and goes, okay, if we have a line of duty death today and another one tomorrow, that nobody ever prepares for that. So um, I know it's been a, a tough go for the whole organization, but I, I want to kind of revisit something. I don't want to get too far ahead because he said something. I want to make sure maybe uh, listeners kind of understand pre-1975 and just, just kind of a quick uh, the way you described that, uh, Captain, so our listeners can understand what you mean by pre-75 building. Sure, yeah. Let me th- shed a little bit more light, and I think this is probably a widespread problematic area for discussion as well, is that probably every city or municipality has some buildings that were built before fire code, sprinkler systems, for one example. So buildings that were built and captured 50s, 60s, anything before 1975, there is no provisions uh, in the way of fire code, uh, building code. It was kind of left in no man's land and open for interpretation uh, as well. We're looking at the the buildings. Well, pausing right now, uh, it's not a problem for buildings that were built later because the provisions are built into the building. One example is that how do you fight a high-rise fire? (laughs) It's easy. Put a sprinkler system in it. A lot of these, you know, a lot of these problems could be avoided with with provisions. There are some buildings that we have is inadequate standpipe pressures, inadequate undersized pumps, fire rated doors at 45 minutes. So we've come a long way, you know, from where we are now, but trying to capture the new, and I call them defect buildings. And your best offense is your best defense. And your best defense is your best offense is knowing these buildings. And you're going to hear me probably say that a lot is that you need to get in buildings. You need to have a pre-plan. You need to think in futuristic terms of when we have a fire, what are we going to do? Futuristic terms. So these, again, to hit on that, uh, 90%, if not 90 plus percent of our fires are going to be in these pre-1975 residential non-sprinkled high-rise buildings. Yeah, and, I, and again, it was more, I want to make sure that uh, some viewers or some, especially younger firefighters may not fully understand that because there's, um, 
you know, obviously the Chicago Fire Department, FDMY, LA, and, you know, some of the bigger cities are routinely going to these buildings, whether it's, you know, small fires or, you know, a major event type of fire. And it's unfortunate that we don't always, I think we kind of get uh, complacent about those kind of buildings. And that really, I think, is even more prevalent in a department that probably hasn't had anything but some alarm bells. And they do take more of a oh, it's sprinkler and sandpipe will be fine approach to it. So I, I, I could not agree with you anymore if I tried that, especially the older high rise or mid rise buildings in your districts. Go walk those buildings and start pre planning. And I, I, I understand the pre planning and, and all that, but a true pre plan on my computer screen isn't going to give me the full picture. And that's why I encourage guys. Get off the rig, get in the elevators, walk the floors, look at the standpipe connections, and actually put your eyes and hands on some things. I think that's a monster difference when it comes to understanding a, a standpipe or a mid-rise fire is actually seeing it in person versus some schematic that somebody drew up on a uh, computer board. I think that's a huge thing you said there, and I really wanted to emphasize that point. Uh, hey, uh, and I want to go with Captain Rowett here just for a second because I know, and I know, Captain, you mentioned this in, in your opening statement about the fatality fire. How do you guys work on your reflex time, Anthony? And I think your reflex time again is one of those things that um, is going to be judged differently. I mean, we had we literally drilled down to reflex time on our even our one story because I want our guys to understand how much time it's taken us from the kitchen table to stretching the first line and put water on the actual fire. But boy, is that time increased when we start adding a floor here and a floor here, <laughs> floor 28th floor. But one, uh, how, how do you guys kind of look at that from the mobile side of things? Cause I understand your staffing, but I kind of want you to share that with everybody listening. Yeah. So um, obviously one of the first things we do is we, we have more people on that initial alarm uh, assignment than we do for just a typical fire. So we have more people already in route that they're not delayed just for us to get there and say, oh, this is actually a fire. They're sending more people initially to get them coming. Um, we're kind of quick to go to that second alarm or higher uh, more than we typically would be um, if we feel we have a fire to get that second alarm coming. Again, just get people responding already so that they're already coming because we know the, the reflex time of going up. Uh, using elevators is a big difference, but – to prepare for the, the having to walk the stairs, one thing we found is um, to make a drill out of PT sometimes is to go to a high-rise district in our area and work it out with them to where let's put our gear on and hike the stairs and make a drill out of it. So we would hike the stairs. That's some cardio for the day. Uh, but we'd hike the stairs, and then once they get up there, you're breathing heavy. You're having a, a little less oxygen in your body as you're trying to think through everything. They're connecting to the outlet, and we're stretching down the hallway. And we've had good success with our building managers and owners to allow us to do that. So one, it gives us a feel for how long it's actually going to take us in these buildings to get up there if we don't have the elevators, uh, but also to get a feel for it's going to take this long. My gear is going to wear me down this much. I'm this tired. And to actually go through the process of hooking up to the outlet on the floor below stretching and we'll tell them either, you know, the, the hallway's dirty. You're going to have to keep the stretch in the stairwell or we're going to apartment stretch down the hallway. And one real big benefit we've got out of that by doing it, not just from the understanding our reflex time and understanding physically how draining that's going to be to hike those stairs is guys are getting reps 
in buildings they're actually going to respond to stretching a line. So when they start realizing, okay, this building's larger, it's going to take more than three lengths of hose, um, they, that stays in their head. They've actually stretched a line in that building, and they start realizing, okay, this is a building needs four lanes, or this building needs five lanes, or this building, the east wing needs three lanes, and the uh, west wing needs two lanes, things like that. So we're getting a few things out of it. Guys are, one, we're quick to send people so that we get more alarms coming and get more people en route to cut down on that reflex time, but also – by doing a training standpoint of doing things in buildings we respond to and actually saying, okay, elevators are out, you got to take the stairs. And then guys also get the feel for this is what it does to my body. This is how I feel. Maybe somebody realizes, hey, I need to work out more, things like that. But also a realistic feel for this is how my gear makes me feel going up the stairs. I'm going to be this tired when I get up there. There, I don't even have anxiety going because this is just the drill it's not actually on fire I'm not in a huge rush and then to go through the process of actually hooking up stretching the line and going through that process and making that muscle memory of this is exactly how i hook my equipment up like for us we use the gate elbow and the gauge and anytime we can they go on in that order and the more you do that especially having just walked those stairs and being tired the more muscle memory that becomes to make sure you're everything up correctly how you're stretching your bundles out and things like that yeah, I love that. And I want to just add something when you guys are doing these drills and I, and I make this recommendation all the time. The older these buildings, especially in residential, one of the things that we saw on a regular encountered was where caps had been removed from uh, outlets and where things were wedged into outlets or where uh, control valves or cabinets had actually been damaged over time. So it's again, and I don't want to get too far off into that because we're going to hit something here in a few minutes about that. But I know, uh, Captain Davis, you, you kind of made mention of this about working in that zero biz and, and, and then row with all that up with dirty hallway. So, uh, Captain Davis, if you could kind of talk, you know, was, the, was there door failures or because of the age of the building, did we not have good door closures behind the actual fire apartment and or hallway? Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of, of a lot of the things that we discuss. And again, it just with the inherent problems with these buildings, uh, which we, we talked about, um, self-closing doors. Self-closing doors, man, is a game changer. All right. That is going to predicate the outcomes that you are going to have when you're up in elevation in a high rise or even in a mid-rise building as well. Um, so I think the combination, if we go back to that day, back to that fire and revisit a couple points of interest, uh, perhaps the door was was cracked open. Uh, perhaps there was a, a failure of some type of uh, closure device, which I would uh, probably uh, say so because of the reverse stack effect going on uh, into that stairwell. Um these are huge, again, game changers of, of the, the dynamics of your fire, whether being at a high rise or a mid rise, is based on door control. What are conditions of that hallway and what is your launch point in the stairwell? Just think how effective or non effective you're going to be in a contaminated stairway. And not only that, then to confront loss of hallway gain the upper hand on that and make your push into the unit on uh, unit on fire, which was every bit of square, uh, 2,500 square foot. It's asking a lot. Yeah. And it's, uh, 
almost insurmountable uh, when you when we look at the when you start stacking up uh, wind condition, <laughs> door closure, door failures, height of the fire. And if you sat down to start making a list, and obviously, like you said before, everything that could go wrong went wrong mm. at that building. That is not as uncommon, I think, as we think. I think we've the fire service and holes probably been very fortunate that we haven't seen more fatality, you know, line of duty deaths in these type of fires than we have in all reality. Uh, and you know, I kind of went back because I had the opportunity to hear Chief Leave uh, from FDNY speak again on. Um, there, I mean, it was a huge, you know, they didn't have lost a lot from firefighters, but the uh, Twin Peaks fire, uh, Twin Parks fire, I mean, was a combination of a lot of those things, including the ion batteries. And I mean, there doors being open, doors not shutting behind them. That was a huge event. And, you know, unfortunately resulted in, you know, 17 civilian loss of lives, including children. So, I think uh, those as a whole, just just the hazards involved uh, when we do have these fires is amazing. <laughs> the other thing that I know we spoke on, again, it's more of a clarification uh, for maybe guys that don't really study or do much uh, high-rise or look at high-rise and mid-rise fires. Um, and just a simple down and dirty explanation of stack effect for, for somebody I know. Obviously, stack effect is going to be a lot more prevalent in our high-rise structures and the weather changes that you guys see in Chicago and that part of the country. But you've mentioned on two occasions already about reverse stack effect. And if you could just offer a, a very simple uh, explanation for us on, on that, that'd be awesome. Cap. Yeah, sure, Ted. I'd love to. Is it We don't have the luxury uh, living up north, which I prefer the weather down south much better. <laughs> All right, the one day that I can get rid of a snow shovel, I'm going to be happy. <laughs> but uh, just briefly, living up north on cold days, the, the, the building has an in, inherent breathing uh, mechanism to it. So it's drawing air in from up the bottom by the lobby, the lower floors, and it's bringing the air up and moving it and exhausting it off the top of the building. All right. What happens with that is that the smoke is going to ride this 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 current, uh, the stack effect. All right. So that's in the winter months. So again, here in Chicago during summer, we get those hot, humid days. Now it's the opposite. Now the smoke is 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 being drawn from the upper floors and being pushed down into the building. So they call that the reverse stack effect or the reverse chimney effect to that as well. And it's all predicated on, on neutral planes, but also temperature differentials between outside and inside. Cold weather, more effect of the outside temperature, let's say it's zero degrees outside with an internal temperature of 72 degrees inside the high-rise building, that smoke is going to be everywhere. You might even find it in your pockets. The smoke permeates everything, but that's just the nature, and, it, and that's the law of physics. Um, and, and that's something that we, we have to take in consideration and also, again, have a plan for this. Remember, in high-rise firefighting, just the same in mid-rise, we got to get water on the fire, but we also have to think, what are we going to do about the smoke, and what degree does this smoke always harm? To the building occupants, you got to think about them too. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm glad, and as I said, I wanted to kind of touch back on that. Uh, whenever we use terminology, um, I always try to revisit that. So in case somebody didn't quite fully understand what we we're talking about, it gives them an opportunity to kind of hear a little more about it and then go back and do a little bit of their own research. And there's uh, plenty of research on the subject matter. Uh, also always recommend definitely look at your wind driven events on these, on these older buildings Please do not take that for granted just because you're on a, on the third or fourth floor that you can't have some kind of wind effect on the actual fire conditions. If you if we have you know window failure, you know door open, it can really turn a hallway into a blowtorch uh, on top of you really really quick. So I want to I know we had a we always do a list for people who who uh, um, don't know what, how we do these shows. We always kind of throw out some questions to ourselves. Hey, we're going to kind of get on this. So I'm going to kind of jump one here. Uh, one of the things that no matter if it's Chicago, Boston, New York, Atlanta, Mobile, Alabama, the every district, every place I travel to are seeing a, a monster increase in mid-rise construction. Mm-hmm. And from multifamily dwellings to the mixed-use occupancies, we're, we're having and we need to really in the fire service start visiting and getting a lot better at these three, four and five story buildings. And we may be having in the past, especially for a small organization who's just now seeing this rapid, unbelievable growth in these structures. So I'm going to ask Rowett this question first because his staffing is a little bit different than Chicago staffing. What is your deciding factor in Mobile, Captain? on whether you're hitting a standpipe in a, a, for a fire or if you're stretching off your own rig? So we um, typically anything a lower floor, ground level in a basement, obviously we're going to stretch because we want that line to bring us out if something was to go bad. Um, lower floors, typically second, third. If we can, we're going to stretch. Um, it, the downtown companies are typically, they have pre-connects, but they've got a long dead bed they can use. Uh, some of the out, outside outline companies out west are more pre-connect driven. <clears throat> and so the length of the line obviously is going to come into play. You don't want to be stretching short. Uh, but we try to go off the, the philosophy that we're going to stretch anytime we can versus using the system because we have con- more control that way. Uh, to quote Chief McGrail, that we're putting positive control into the situation because we check the rig off. We check the hoses. There's no factor that we didn't have a, a hand in in this, like the maintenance of the system how long has it been since it's been checked and all that. So if we can stretch, we want to. Um, some of our – some buildings we're going, and it's a long, long distance to get from where we can position just to even get to a stairwell. Um, and that kind of limits us more to that ground floor in the basement uh, where it's just easier to use the standpipe. But typically, we're not going to start using it until we get at least above the second floor. Um, and then we'll factor in, does it have – some of the newer buildings, the stairs are – to the outside edges of the building instead of in the center core. And then they have an exterior access to the stairwell and we can park right at that exterior access. And then it happens to have a well hole. So we're positioning 15 feet from the center of the stairs. That's going to allow us to run vertical. So we'll go even further there than just to keep the control in our favor of putting ourselves in more control. We have someone actually operating the pump, not just a fire pump running. If we need more pressure, we're having problems. So if we can, we try to avoid using the system by stretching. And typically, anything on a lower level floor, we're going to stretch if we can. Okay. And I I just want to do that same question with uh, Captain Davis as well. I think it's important to see uh, some different versions of uh, how these decisions are being made. 
Yeah, Anthony, it, it was really, really kind of good stuff. And, and just to jump on a couple of things here to talk about uh, through training and evolutions, uh, I have determined, and I think others have determined, if you're doing a conventional up the stairs type of lead out, stuffing your hose and flaking out in the stairwell, that time could be possibly two minutes per floor, all right? Two minutes per floor. So let, let's say we're stretching to, to floor six. Feasibly on a conventional stretch in a stairwell, that can take up to eight to 10 minutes before you call for water. Now, I just did a drill. Uh, and again, I, we, and I would say as a company, you know, practice on it is our, our different options when it comes with these mid-rise stretches. Check this out. Well stretch, sixth floor, one minute, one minute. So think of that reflex time. So even we, we kind of put reflex time or kind of give it a label and a high rise. Every fire you go to is a reflex time. Every fire that you go to is going to require some type of in and out and time and task. What we're trying to do is reduction in time and task. That's why stressing and, and the importance and saying it to your blue in the face is that the only way to get good in these things is you got to get the holes in your hands. It's a reduction of time and task. The more you do it, the more repetitive that you're doing, you're taking a chunk out of the valuable time. And whose time is it? It's the building occupants. It's the, pill, the, the people we serve. It would behoove of you to be good at what you're doing. If you're from an engine company, guess what you should be doing? Getting comfortable, stretching lines, building skills, having confidence in order to do that. Um one thing I also wanted to bring up, Todd, and I think this is that, that we don't talk about it more often, and I think you talked about it, Anthony, it says, what is your response profile of the people showing up? There is nothing in NFPA 1710 about what should your response be at a mid-rise building. Remember, a mid-rise is kind of like, smells like a duck, you know, talks <laughs> like a duck, it still is. What it is is a miniature <laughs> high-rise, a mid-rise, four to seven stories, but it has the same complicity level, the degree of complicity they'd have a high-rise, all right? What are we looking at? So I found out the only thing in NFPA is that a garden-style apartment, and they're addressing a, a unit or a room about 1,200 square foot. Your response profile should have 27 people. Are we meeting that in our departments? Are we meeting that um, from the sake of, of, of taking a chunk or a bite out of that reflex time to getting that line of service? Here's an example, too. Now shifting back to high rises. The recommended response to a high rise is 42 people. So look at that. Everything that we talk about requires people. It requires body. It requires a high degree of awareness, intelligence to get these tasks done. Um, if you think about how many departments can muster that kind of response profile with that with that type of manpower, and I, you know, I think, and I speak for myself and probably others, is that we're not showing up, and this is something that we need to have a discussion with in your department and. You know, also with, with your fire districts or city council, union, you need people. 
you know, and uh, even from a big department from Chicago, man, these incidents are manpower magnets, manpower. So that was one thing, again, that needs to be discussed as well, uh, Todd, with it. And I know that your your other question is what, um, are we going to use a standpipe? Are we not going to use a standpipe? And let's look at it from a mid-rise perspective. And you need to look at it. You know, and I wrote down a couple notes here that in, in which I use. It's the decision is guided by real-time information, expedient firefighting. What is the fastest way to get that line in service? All right. Also, other considerations. Your crew and what is their experience level? I'm going to pause here for a second, too. Chicago is a huge department. All right. We also have rovers or detail people. And that's something you want to take into account. For example, if you have all high-rise guys detailed into the west side where we get a lot of our fires in the south side, they're good at high-rise, but single-family, they might falter. And the same applies to the other way. Sending firemen that are really, really good at single-family dwellings and multi-dwelling fires, put them in a high-rise environment. That's got to be considered, all right? What And I think we talked about it. What is the quickest way to get that line in service? There can not be anything more important to get that line and get water on that fire. That will save more lives than anything else. Um, knowing, uh, knowing where the fire, location, location, location. Remember these mid-rise fires, a lot of them, there's not going to be anything, anything showing, especially with high rises. And I'm going to stop there, and I want to give one critical piece of information, and we're going to kind of go back to this uh the high rise the primary reflex time know that the conditions on arrival what you see when you pull up may not be the case when you get up to the 27th floor or the 30th floor and we're talking about another game changer is in the integrity of the window now we had a fire in january minimal smoke pumping out time they got it, it was full-blown outside of the window, which, again, you talked about the Todd, which draws the entertainment of more potential hazards of a wind-driven event. So what you see may not what you get when you make that fire floor as well. Um, but those are the couple things that, you know, wind-driven fire from, from Chief Little. Uh, he retired. He was with the 1st Battalion. He has been such a mentor to me. Uh, a, a knowledgeable encyclopedia of high rise firefighting. Uh, the conditions that are right for a wind driven event. Uh, a fire on the 30th floor. All right. Winds uh, coming in at uh, 30 miles an hour. All right. And temperature 30 degrees. We talked about that stack effect. That is your rule of 30s of the prime conditions to be on the watch out for potential wind-driven event. And I tell you, it, it, York has had them. Uh, that gained its popularity and its awareness level from the Vandalia fire. Uh, but we've had it, too, where we've actually burned up firemen and, uh, you know, God willing, uh, God has had a hand uh, that you know, kept them safe or else we would have experienced multiple line-of-duty de dust fires. Yeah, and uh, it's amazing how, you know, and, when you pulled up the, when you started talking about the NFPA numbers, 
the majority of the American Fire Service is not throwing 28 or 42 guys at an incident. They just don't have the staffing and their reflex time or their response matrices are very dependent on automatic aid, mutual aid companies. And so you're just adding, you're just stacking time, stacking time, stacking time. And I think that's one of the things when, when I go in, one of the first things I love to do is uh, I'm heading to Spartanburg uh, tomorrow. I mean, on Wednesday, and I'm running slides. I'm looking at all their downtown area going, man, I wonder what their plan is for this because – this is a hazard area that they have, and it's a mid-rise building. They have a true one really big high-rise uh, in the center of downtown. But it's amazing how many departments don't look past because, you know, 98% of our fires are going to be single-family or, you know, two- and three-story multifamily. But it's those other fires. And obviously, New York has them all the time. This, uh, New York doesn't, you know, <laughs> New York probably does better with the six-, seven-story tenement buildings than they do the one-story wood frame in some cases because they're so used to humping six flights of stairs and using well hole stretches and rope stretches and all those things we we tend to teach at conferences. But it's great base information, but, God, they have to go back to their organizations and look at their host packages, look at their nozzle packages, look at how they're going to make those stretches. So I love one of the very first things I actually wrote down – because I preach the same thing as you're saying, I want us to all three be preaching this. You have got to know these damn buildings. You, you can't just assume all the information is coming up on a computer screen. And even if it does, when was the last update? A year ago, two years ago. So those are great bases, and they may help an incident commander, but that first arriving captain getting that fire floor, you've got to have more than a knowledge of somebody telling them they've got to have that working hands-on knowledge that we're referring to the uh, uh, the other big one and i don't know in the chicago area is that in the metro atlanta and throughout the south southeastern united states we're seeing so much of these live work play communities where it's going to be a type two non-combustible ground floor and then three four stories of wood frame making it a tall building and one of the first things i always ask when i go to those or those places is where's your access points just getting it, finding the stairs of some of these is, is a matrix within itself. Um, and I don't know where what Chicago's seeing as far as new construction. I know big cities uh, are seeing more of that vertical than they are, you know, horizontal spread out. And I think that's, uh, again, one of those challenges that we have kind of, that we're going to get caught on before we actually address it. And I think it's something that, guys like yourself and, and Roy Ed, and I know Steve Robson's got some really cool ideas in his head about mid-rises um, that we better get ahead of this now or else we are going to have another major incident or a fatality incident involving both us and civilians. Uh, camera, what on yours for Mobile's kind of seeing somewhere there's some growth and then you guys have some old, old mid-rise and high-rises throughout that old southern downtown uh, part of your city. So what are some things or challenges you're seeing kind of staying on that standpipe and um, mid-rise and all those type of things? So first I want to kind of point out something Jimmy said that um, two points that he made of thinking about who you have and their experience being are they high-rise guys, are they single-family dwelling guys, like you've been to Mobile – we run the high-rise district, but still a majority of even our first two fires, 
they're in single family dwellings or multifamily dwellings, but they're brick, they're wood or brick structures. Typically it's not, that's not what we do on a daily basis. Our bread and butter fire is a single family dwelling home and SRO, things like that. So like Jimmy was saying, you don't always see what you actually have from the outside, but even our, we run the high rise district. We're used to it. Our typical experience is we see something. If there is something, even if it's not much, it's putting some smoke out and, in the, in the past year, we've had two high-rise fires where that just wasn't the case, and it's a mental thing. So we had one. It's a it's an apartment building literally across the street from the firehouse we go to all the time, and it actually came in as an alarm, not even a fire. But we send a full alarm to those because of the high-rise. So we pull up, nothing's showing. Everything's normal, just an alarm. We got companies staging coming in, so we figure out exactly where the alarm's going off and everything. We get in and even the building manager's like, oh, it's just an alarm on the seventh floor. Maintenance is up there and there's no smoke in the hallway, but you can see the water coming out from the sprinklers around the door. And we ended up having a fire in there. The sprinklers took care of most of it, but did find an unconscious victim in that apartment. Mm -hmm. So things changed very, very fast. Then we also had one in a commercial high rise where it came in and we happened to just be a block away from it because we were doing hydrant inspections. So as soon as it comes in and it says the address, we look over at it. And we pull up, nothing showing. And again, another building we typically go to. They said, you have a report of a fire on the eighth floor, which is where the mechanical room is, and we're always going to it. And it's just kind of the normal as we go. Well, it happens to be the guy that used to drive for me, his wife's the building manager. And we walked through the front door, and she was like, Anthony, it's on fire. It's on fire. Go up there and put it out. And we're like, yeah, we got <laughs> it. So we're making our way to the alarm panel because we're always going and checking the panel, make sure we know where that initial alarm was and all that. And because uh, the tenant stairs and things like that. And I'm, I just told, tell her, I'm like, the eighth floor, right? And she said, no, the 20th. So everything can change very fast because we're not used to, we're not seeing always what we're used to seeing. So I thought those were two really good points that were driven home to us in different ways in the past year on fires we had, where one, it was the whole, everything changed. We were going from the eighth floor to now we're going to 20. Or we were going to an alarm and even the building manager saying there's nothing to it to, We've got the sprinklers have knocked most of it down and we've got, we've located an unconscious person inside the apartment that we got to pull mm. out. So I thought those were two really good points that in my, just in the past year for me personally have, have really um, been emphasized in our experiences. But to answer your question too, Todd, like we're used to old buildings. That's typically, if you work in the downtown area for us, we're used to old buildings, whether it's the high rises or turn of the century, the, Taxpayer buildings are turn of the century. The houses are turn of the century. They're, everything's old for us. Um, so we don't get a lot of new construction in my area, but what we're seeing out west is what we're seeing when it comes into our area. And it's that, that podium, pedestal, whichever your terminology is a lot of times, construction where the first floor is concrete and then everything above it's wood and it's staying under 75 feet tall so it doesn't fall into a high-rise requirement. Um, and for us, one of the biggest issues with that for us is terminology, is getting everyone to understand what they're seeing and they identify the building and their size up correctly, but also what does those terms mean to different people? If we say podium construction, everyone should know what we're talking about. We've got the first floor too that's concrete and everything above it's wood, and we need to make sure everyone's on the same page and we're not just saying, oh, you're coming downtown to a, a, part, a five-story apartment building. No, we, this is a wooden building. And I still remember probably 14 years ago, 13 years ago, you've been to downtown Mobile. If it's if it looks like it's a brick building or a stucco building, it, it's type three or it's type four. That's what it is for us. And they built this new hotel 
And when we saw it go up and it was stick built and it was just wood everywhere, toothpicks, we went to the bureau and we were like, my, my captain at the time was like, what are you guys allowing? This is, there's no way this is allowed. Cause we're not used to these wooden buildings like that in that area of the city. When they're that big, it, it's a type three building. It's not a, the exterior is not wood. And uh, they were like, no, it's allowed. It's got sprinklers and all this. And we were like, what are you talking about? But the big thing that made for us is when we see a building that looks like that to us, it's type three, it's type four. We've been in it before to figure out which of those it is by, by the size of the structural members. But we never in our mind are thinking this is a wooden building that's got concrete stairwells and elevator shafts and that's it. Uh, so it, that, that was our big uh, learning point we had to come to was really understanding these buildings and the way they're being built because these new buildings were nothing like the ones we're used to. So the big thing for us just became if you have a building being built in your area, you get out there a lot and you watch it be built. So you know exactly what's going on with it, and you really know that building well. And that once it's built, you go get get in a building, uh, do your walkthroughs. But going back to like what you said earlier, Todd, we to me something on a computer screen is not really that that helpful to me. We've had really good success, like I said earlier, with being able to drill in buildings um, and just being able to talk to managers and saying, "Hey, do you mind if we if we stretch a hose line in your building while we're here?" And they give you a crazy look, and then you explain, "Hey, we just want to make sure." You know, we know exactly what we need to do in your building if you have a fire. And they've always been really good to us about it. And we'll just stretch lines in their buildings. And the the, the repetition of that, of, of especially for a younger guy, not a lot of experience, especially in a big, bigger building, to be able to calm down that anxiety level if that fire comes in and being able to say, I've been in this building. I know exactly what to do. I've done it before. Doing that versus stretching in a parking lot or your drill tower goes a long way and especially helps those guys learn those buildings. So that was the big learning point for us was just identifying how they're built because it wasn't what we're used to uh, in such an old area of the city. And then saying, okay, we've got to get in these buildings and and we've got to know what's going on. So we get in them while they're being built. And then as soon as they're built, we try to go do a drill in them. I love that. And, and that, both listening to both of you right there, one of the things that, I, that I've been really harping on, especially when they're throwing, you know, 12 guys on the initial alarm and they have fire on five, you know, four or five. And, I, you know, debate or question the, some of the things I'm saying because I just had a debate with a guy about this uh, when we started talking about water or people, people or water. And I know that always comes up. So, on the smaller organization or a, or a, a, a middle-sized fire department where they're, where they're going to throw 13, 14 guys, I'm really been harping on marrying up the first initial companies and make that initial stretch, whether that's a well hole or coming off the standpipe. I don't want to overcrowd, but I also don't want three guys who just jumped up, you know, five floors. Now they're having to make a stretch mask up and push a dirty hallway. But finding it through doing a lot of training and being on some fires like this, that if I married up the first couple engine companies and that first truck, it's amazing how my, and I, I want to go back because I know Jimmy had mentioned the well hole stretch in a minute to the sixth floor. Was that a three person company or six guys, eight guys? I just want to hear your thoughts first, uh, Jimmy, about marrying up some companies and make that initial fire attack hard push. Yeah, Todd, yeah, I'll, I'll elaborate that uh, a little bit. When we, we look at that, that that stretch, the well stretch, it was performed by one 
one person. And on these mid-rises, not to get too deep into the weeds, but your mid-rise package is kind of like a hybrid high-rise package. You're just using inch and three-quarter holes, either with a 7.8 or 150.50. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it is better to, to separate supply from suppression. So in other words, what we're doing is we're getting our attack package all set up and stretched, especially for a dry apartment stretch. That's being done while your supply is coming in. They'll meet in the stairway and make the connection, and then you're called for water. All right? That's a very expedient way. But again, you have to look at your numbers. you got to have a game plan with that. If you're showing up with uh, three or four people, listen, you may... You may have no other choice but to wait for another company. How are you going to advance that out of a stairwell, jettison out of that, make a couple turns, and magically make it into the burning unit? It requires people. Uh, again, this is something that you got to have the discussion beforehand. you got to have the game plan of what's going to happen. I already talked about it in futuristic terms. We need to think about the future. We need to think and have the mindset that you are going to have a, a fire in this building. One of my biggest pushbacks I hear, too, is that, don't worry, Jim, it's sprinkled. <laughs> you know, to that for being sprinkled, Jim, but you still can have fires in these buildings. I wanted to talk about the, the high prevalence, too, and I didn't mention before. When we look at the behemoths or the modern-day mid-rise building that is sprouting up in every neck of the wood in America, so as of today and as of when I did the research, 44%, 44% of multi-dwelling buildings are now becoming mid-rises, again, falling in that four- to seven-story building. Only 11% of multi-dwellings today are high-rises, so you're almost looking at upwards of 50% of these buildings. Um, We have these sprouting everywhere in Chicago. They're getting rid of the old taxpayer, the old three to four story uh, ordinary constructed built at the turn of the century. And guess what they're putting? They're putting your mid-rise. And Anthony talked about that. Your type one construction with businesses or anchor tenants, all right, that are generating income. And then above that, you could see any type of construction. I've seen type 2 non-combustible to wood frame. But the provisions here that they must be sprinkled. But who's going to bet 100% that those sprinklers are going to be working? There's always that element of human error. And that human error, man, throws a proverbial monkey wrench into things and how we do things as well. That could lead you to the bad day. Um Here's one other discussion we don't talk about, and I think it's very underutilized. It's utilized a lot here. Just recently, we had another high-rise fire, fire on the 10th floor. Uh, That fire was this month. Guess what the fastest and the most expedient way to deliver water that was the not, one, man. I was going. I was, that was on my list to bring up with you. So I love that you're already on it. Let's go. Let's talk <laughs> about the deck gun. I'm sure modern day America, modern day fire service in your department, you have a deck gun. You know, and how many times have I seen? And remember, this is just a point of discussion. We don't talk about faults or flaws of other departments because we all have them. But sometimes the most underutilized answer to your question of how to get the most bang for my buck, what's the fastest expedient way of water delivery is from your deck gun. 
Now let's talk about that high-rise fire. 10th floor, engine 126 opened up. Man, did they crush it. By the time the companies got there, they says, where's the fire? Where's it all at? So they've done it. So never discount, never discourage. Is that the best water that you're going to have at a fire is going to be your fastest water. And this is something something Chicago Fire has done forever. Uh, correct. Yeah, Todd. Yeah. This is kind of standard protocol. I know in our discussion somewhere today, somebody's going to open up a deck gun on a fire. I know that I do. And our mid-rises, and I have a lot of the older uh, multi-dwellings that are, are, are three-story ordinaries, up to four stories. If you've got the shot, it reminds me of a movie. Hey, you got the shot, take the shot. You got the shot, mm-hmm. take the shot. You know what I mean? Introduce the exterior water in there. Buy yourself some time. This is extremely critical, too, man, when you're dealing with, with very minimal manpower. Let's try to stack the cards in our favor. Let's do everything that we can in our favor to be effective. And I want to kind of piggyback and just kind of, you know, so people understand – because I know I'm going to get an email or we're going to get a comment about no. everybody. <laughs> so before you say that, we're not saying that we're going to use a deck gun or a monitor on every single scenario. But, man, what a weapon that is so underutilized in certain cases. We were blessed to have a uh, six-story six story hotel this past summer uh, over in the Birmingham, Alabama area. And I had some true experts uh, from Elkhart Brass. Steve Robson was part of this test. Kyle Romgis was part of this test. And we did. We went with some big water application and found it to be, because I actually tried to video it from the interior hallway, which was a bad idea on my part as I was diving out of the uh, room. But uh, the penetration, the impact it had, and the where we were set up at was well over 200 feet away, and we still had a huge impact on that room. Um, and we were able to get a lot of water real fast into that one compartment, and it probably could it would have saved lives, not endangered lives in all reality. The other thing we found is in that hallway, the way the stream was directed, there was not a lot of change in pressure, even in the hallway, which was good to see and witness versus making assumptions. The other thing we did at that same training, Jimmy, is we set up a portable ram in a hallway, and we were able to take out the entire hallway of fire with one ram, and it was under one minute. I think Ray or Ram just posted us doing this, and um, the setup was quick. The water was incredible, and it, it literally was saved all the auto-exposed build, uh, apartments above us simply with that one tool, short-staffed, quick water and we had unbelievable results with that so i think there are some other things out there that we need to look at it doesn't always have to be an instrument quarter off a standpipe or making this ungodly stretch with again going back to one of the things that, and we keep falling back to this which i love staffing is going to dictate sometimes what we can and what we cannot do and for chicago where you guys atlanta for myself i just kid i keep hitting the button Send me another alarm. Send me another alarm. Send me another alarm. In Fayetteville, Georgia, that's not an option for them. They have got to have other things in their playbook Mm -hmm. versus, oh, we're just going to carry up to the, you know, fifth floor and we're going to hook up to the standpipe. We're going to go right down the hallway and we're going to be heroes. It's not going to be realistic. And 
they're seeing ungodly amounts of growth in these outlying suburbs of the big city. I think, uh, you know, like with, I'm sure we've been in the Chicago area, the Atlanta area, these suburbs are seeing ungodly growth and they are, they're all going vertical. I love that you had that 34% uh, with uh, uh, being multifamily or now mid-rise buildings. And we have not done, in my opinion, enough training and had enough open conversation about options and fighting these fires. And I think I'm glad we're having this conversation today. And uh, it's something that me and Rowett had, had numerous talks about. Steve Robson out of Columbus, Ohio, they've had a lot of talks about it. I know, you know, I know some of the things Chicago's been doing for years. Now I think we need to really start pushing that out to, to the rest of the American fire service. Yeah, right on, Todd, on that, too. You know, you, you got to know, uh, you know, what you have at your disposal, and all this is happening in real time. So real-time fires require a real-time decision. And I can't think of any faster way uh, besides preventing the fire to, you know, from occurring in the first place is that, uh, the application of exterior water via the deck gun. I've seen it. I've used it. Um, it works, folks. It works. And it's funny how that at one time, uh, I, I always talk about how the fire service can be very trendy. Mm. <laughs> and somebody they'll see one, you know, uh, like everything, everybody now is in this, we have to flow and move on every single fire. Well, we don't have to flow and move on every single fire. There's a time and place to be flowing and moving. There's a time and place to pin and hit. But we will trend into whatever's popular at the moment. And uh, uh, I remember coming up, uh, I was one of the first things I was taught on as a volunteer firefighter was that quick, rapid hit water with a deck gun. And then we went away from it and everything became pre-connected. And now we're seeing a trend back to more of the static beds and reverse layouts. And it's funny how the, uh, the fire service as a whole will trend up and down in different directions on certain things. But. I don't care what the trend is. I want to know what's going to work best at that next fire. And I think uh, some of the old tried and true methods, uh, the old blitz attack methods in some cases, there's a time and a place. And uh, I love that you brought it up. I was going to bring it up, so I'm glad you jumped on that first. Yeah. And, and Todd, remember, you're not camping out there, too. You're you're giving it a blast. Buy you some time, 10 to 15 seconds, no more than 30 seconds on that. Uh, you're going to achieve some type of uh, a desired effect, uh, again, with the application of water on the fire. You're talking 8.6 gallons per second. That's a big bang for your buck. So, yes. again, don't discourage or dis dis discount it. Get your hands on it and practice. Yeah, and, and go back real quick and before we move on to anything else. Please, please, please take a note of this if you're listening or go back and replay what Captain Davis just said, we're not trying to drown out the whole building. We're trying to get that quick hit. If you're short-staffed, that hit alone is going to buy you, and more more importantly, people trapped above the fire some time. Amen. And that's what we're – at the end of the day, that's all we're really trying to do. We'll get our line stretched. We're still going to make that interior uh, push. But, man, that is amazing what that little bit will do to buy us uh, extra seconds that we need, whether we're waiting on additional companies or waiting on a stretch. Uh, if, if we're having standpipe issues, which is always a probability, uh, especially in an older standpipe building, is the standpipe been damaged over years and we missed it? 
Is every valve open? Uh, we're losing water on every floor except our damn fire floor. There's, and it, I want to just kind of jump into this. I know as we had kind of towards uh, the end of one of the things we we're going to talk about. But uh, let me hit Rowette first because being in an older city, common problems you guys have found during your walkthroughs, Cap Rowette. I know you've sent me some pictures. I'm always taking pictures like uh, of damp pipe and hose cabinets and all this craziness that you see. But some of the more common ones you've encountered, uh, Cap Rowette. Uh, so some of it is just simply at the FTC, you know, uh, swivels that are stuck shut and you can't get them to swivel. Um, another one we've seen is um, – one of the FTC inlets being dented, something that hit it. Um, and just teaching guys, like, just because you see one side's damaged and it's not round anymore so you can't hook up to it, doesn't mean the whole FTC's out. Check if that clapper valve's in there and you can use the other outlet. Don't just write it off. Little things like that. Uh, for some of our stuff, uh, like I've sent you pictures and video of, uh, some of our buildings, they used, to, they used to put the fire pumps in vaults in the sidewalk. And they're not watertight, and they're like a half a block from the bay in a city that floods all the time. And it's the rainiest <laughs> city in the country by rain volume. So when a hurricane comes in, I don't care what sump pump you have, when the water's feet above that vault, you're not pumping the water out. So these vaults have been completely submerged before, and you go in there, and the fire pump is just completely rusted, and you know it's not going to run. Uh, so we've only got like one building really left that's like that, 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 and it's being addressed currently. But we do know we have things like that going on in the city. Um, we allow every PRV you ha can buy in our city. So we to, like, there's some departments like Chicago and New York don't allow them. They write it out of their code. Other departments, uh, Columbus, Ohio, Denver, they write it into their city code where only certain ones can be allowed based on their ability to be adjusted to correct a human error in installation. We allow you to put whatever in there. So for us, it's making sure our guys are able to identify those and they know how to fix it if a problem does occur. Um, and then it's just the maintenance of the system. Um, just we have some buildings that we you look at it and you just know it hasn't been maintained. And just being able to – that's why we stretch if we can. Is just we don't have control in that. I mean the Bureau to an extent does, but still even if it's tested the way it's supposed to, it's getting a yearly test. Murphy's loss is that fire is coming on day 364. So <laughs> for, uh, those are what we're used to. We're used to things that the FTC, someone hit it with a, you know, hit it with a car, someone hit it with something, a damaged one inlet, or they painted the swivel 10 years in a row and it, don't, it doesn't swivel, uh, things like that. We know we have our problems with some fire pumps that were in those non-waterproof faults for years. Uh, so things like that are just, we know what to look for. We know typically which buildings are our problems. Uh, one good thing is a lot of our old, old high rises have been recently purchased by new people, a lot of them by the state retirement system. So they've been completely remodeled and they've updated everything to the newest code standard for that. So some of our buildings that for years we just knew, hey, we know the fire pump's not going to kick in here. We know this. Like we know we do not trust the standpipe in this building at all has been corrected over the past five to six years for us just in those buildings being repurchased by somebody else and being updated. But those were things we were used to was just the fire pumps being in those under sidewalk vaults. And uh, we just knew they weren't going to work to uh, just maintenance issues. And then the FTC damage was an easy one for us to just make sure people identify it. You know, for years I was even told if you, if you come up and the swivels won't swivel, go back to the truck, get a double male and a double female to extend the swivel out. Well, I can just twist the hose to the left and then, 
put it in the outlet or the inlet, twist it back to the right, and I made it a connection, and I didn't have any trips back to the rig. So uh, for us, it was, hey, these are what we commonly run into. Here, don't – this isn't this major thought process to how to overcome it. You know we're going to run into these. They should almost be expected, not unexpected. How do you do it? And then we don't really deal with many dry systems. Uh, typically for us, it's like a stadium or a parking garage. Everything else is, is a wet system. But we know our parking garage is downtown. We have a large homeless population. Uh, only thing I could assume is they're trying to take a bath, but they uh, they open a valve, water doesn't come out, they go try the next one. So we when we go to parking garages, we'll walk it while we're there and make sure all the outlets are closed. We've had some of them where there's you know, 34, 36 outlets in the in the parking complex, and we found 16 to 18 to 18 of them open with missing caps at one time. And if you were trying to hook up to that system, you're not going to generate your pressure, which is just another reason why when we go to parking garages, we're we're just going to rope stretch it nine out of ten times rather than use the system and eliminate that issue of having to commit companies just to make sure the outlets are closed because we're not achieving pressure. So it's again, we know it's a common problem in the city. One of our easy solutions is just carry a rope up, drop it, and raise the hose mm-hmm. up to us. So that's uh, same, what we do. Okay. Same question. Uh, some of the most common problems that you guys have encountered there in Chicago from uh, your experience, Captain Davis. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to kind of just shed the light on, on the standpipe operation. You know, first thing I want to mention, I think this is very important, too, that we have the discussion as well on this. Um Chicago is 28, it's about 28, uh, 2,875 high-rise buildings. Did you say 2,000? Yes, every, every bit of it. <laughs> how, how does a fire prevention police all these buildings? How does building department police all these buildings? Uh, you have to be an extension yourself uh, of these entities. You also have to be your, your, your own advocate. All right. Remember, we talked about uh, self-closing doors. If you come across it, say something. It may not be your shift crawling down the hallway when you lose the, the, the hallway because the self-closing door is not working or missing. And believe me, a lot of them have been disabled or they're missing. All right. Be your own advocate. And the biggest problem that I would say with the standpipe operation that we what I've encountered and, and seeing and being able to teach us so the biggest problem is the standpipe operation as itself is the biggest problem. And the ultimate distractor is the fire of itself. All right. When we look at and we break down our fires, when we have to do elevation, all right, a.k.a. a high-rise standpipe leadout, did you know that everything and a lot of your problems are traced back, guess what, <laughs> to the leadout, all right? We, we are action-oriented people, man. We're all type A. We are all want to get things done right away. While we're rushing things, get what, guess what we're doing is that we're making critical errors. There's a line from Chief Tracy from FDNY, another one of my mentors, Jack, uh, Jack Murphy and Chief Tracy. It says make time, uh, make time to save time or save time to make time. All right. When you're dealing with a sandpipe operation, or let alone any type of operation in a taller building, you need to slow down. And you're like, oh, slow down. We're in a hurry <laughs> because people's lives are at stake. But you are no good when you botch the lead out and that line never gets where it needs to go. So what would you rather have? 
We need efficiency, and efficiency can only be built into the stretch. Uh, again, uh, reiterating, listen, you've got to know your buildings. You've got to have the game plan. You need to know, again, information already done on your walkthrough. It's, it doesn't take long to do a, a pre-building fire plan, all right, looking where the standpipe connection, where is the closest hydrant. Where is the stairway? Do I have to recall the elevator? What is the farthest stretch to the most remote uh, uh, apartment building? You can do all that in a matter of 10 minutes. Um, my philosophy is that, again, you got to build the things in your favor. Stack the cards in your favor. And it can only be done by that and taking personal interest, all right? Taking stock uh, is it you got to think along the terms. When am I going to get that fire? And am I going to be ready for it? I think uh, <clears throat> everything, and I, yeah, I kind of came back to a comment I made earlier about, because we may run to the 1965-built eight-story mm. elderly complex 95 times this year on alarm bells or a food on the stove that we get very, very complacent, very, very quickly. And that is such a huge point you just made about walking these buildings and all that. But the, I love that you brought up inspections. You could not have enough inspectors to keep up with these buildings. And then as soon as they get caught up, there's 10 more new buildings they got worried about. So, yeah, it'd be very easy um, working in that area for a little bit, uh, overseeing that area. It was impossible. It was impossible to, to honestly tell people that every year we're doing all these on every floor and every high rise uh, religiously. It's just not realistic. So for the company officer and the battalion chiefs, don't think for a second that that building just had a recent inspection because it was due their annual inspection. One of the first things I do when I go like to a hotel, I always walk no matter what floor I'm on. I will, if I'm on the 18th floor, I will walk down the stairs and I look at all the standpipes. I want to see what, where they're located at. I want to see what kind of condition they're in. Are there leaks? Is there damage already that maybe didn't even get reported? Um, we found a damaged hydrant that we would have utilized for a high-rise fire at the Hilton in Pensacola before and had to report it. You know, so that, that's just us. So when was the last time they actually had that full-blown, obviously the, the best standpipe in the entire country, I can guarantee you this, <laughs> the Hilton Hotel on Pensacola Beach because we flow it religiously. <laughs> So if you're at the Hilton Hotel, you're golden on their sandpipe operations. It's going to work. Guarantee it's going to work. But even then, you still um, there, there's always those other challenges there. And, I, and I, we talk about the coastal versus inner, you know, where I'm at when we're, you know, obviously, you know, the Windy City. But anything along the coast, they better have a game plan. I know uh, my buddy Captain Kevin McCart there in the Myrtle Beach area in Horrid County. They go to high rise every day. They go to high rises and they're walking and they're looking and they're examining and they've changed their packages solely based because the guys have actually gone out and looked and not just said, oh, well, the free fire plan for five years ago says we do this. Things change over real rapidly in these buildings. 
The other challenge that, that these outer areas, the suburbs are seeing, is when we talked about the podium construction, is the parking decks built around them, even limiting more of our access. And I love that you've said this several times now, Jimmy, about having a game plan. You know, because I can't, you know, maybe the because of where the fire's at, will my deck gun be an effective tool because of where I got positioned my apparatus at? So those are just amazing things that you guys are saying. I, I, I love that we're having this conversation. I, I, I forgot. Just listening, I got two pages of notes already. I hope uh, everybody does the same thing uh, when they do, when they when they listen to this uh, coming up. The, the One of the other things, and I don't want to get too far away from this, and I know uh, the longer stretches – how many people do you guys commit in Chicago to make the initial coming off the leave line, standpipe, fires on 25? How many people are you committing to the initial stretch in your organization? First, first and second engine will will marry up. And you're talking anywhere from seven to eight people to make that happen. Um, I mean, it's a lot. A lot of people don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we talked about I would not involve yourself and, and really jump into a sandpipe operation if you're limited with people. You know, a dry stretch or some fudge factor or some wiggle room when you're stretching dry when that apartment is closed and you got a pretty good condition on that fire floor in the hallway. Uh, but how many times does it happen? Uh, again, it's all surfaces back to that it takes bodies especially in mid and high rise building is that you either, if you don't have two engines, combine the forces. All right. That could be with your regional automatic aid departments, or if it's a truck company. Oh yeah. And I tell the truck guys, it's okay, man, to handle hose. All right. You can help stretch. You know what I mean? You know, nothing to offense. I love my truck guys, but you know what? It's an all hands on deck approach. And it's an all hands on deck operation. Hundred, I mean, couldn't. Then I mean, I'm, I know I'm on the right track uh, when I'm teaching mid rise ops. With that, just that <laughs> alone, uh, talking about the number of bodies and the number of people we send. Any any kind of smoke condition for me was an automatic as a BC was automatic staging a second alarm. Just because I know the guys are going to get tapped and the resources are going to get taxed almost immediately. Um, I think kind of feeding off of that. And this is another new, I don't want to say new, is it probably last 10 years, but exploding everywhere are these mid-rise. There are not full-blown nursing homes, but they're elderly mid-rise buildings where your entire population is 65 and older with a huge amount of health issues, bedridden, wheelchairs, uh, but they have full kitchens. Um, I've been on some where they're cooking in one room and they got overflowing ashtrays in the other. So the potential for a a very tragic, difficult fire could be uh, something that we're going to see. Fortunately, most of these are new and they have sprinklers and all that. But like I always tell my guys, maybe this isn't, maybe this is the day. Maybe this is the one that overrides the sprinkler. Maybe this is the one where the the, the head's blocked or the head's clogged or, you know, a thousand other things could go wrong. Have you guys looked at some of those issues in, um, in Mobile, starting with Anthony, as far as uh, – I don't know if you guys are seeing those or not. I know they literally every other block around me, I see them going up. Yeah, we, we have a good bit of them. Um, 
there's certain areas that that's basically what they run. I mean, that they're they're going to those kind of buildings five, six, seven times a day. We've got a few in our run area. Um, we had a fire in one a couple years ago, and it was – I mean, the go-to was just – it doesn't have a standpipe, but, but it does have a well hole. We just positioned – we took the well hole, and it made an easy stretch for us. So, mm-hmm. uh, But that it, we take advantage of it that we make a lot of medical runs in those buildings, so we always take – we make it a fire every time. So we always talk about – Okay, we, we had a fire in this apartment. We're coming out of it. How many doors down is it to the stairwell if you just got jammed up in the hallway? Making sure guys are you know aware of their surroundings and then how long is the stretch because there is no standpipe. How long is the stretch? Which stairwell would you take? And they know how much hose it's going to take. So to sit there, even though we had a detailed guy in that day that comes from an area that really doesn't even have anything that's two stories, almost everything they go to is single story, it's still everything went nice and smooth. And to go to something uh, Jimmy said, which we do the same thing, the two engines are always, anytime we hook up to a standpipe, it's mandated those two are together, is that coordination with the truck. Um, and Jimmy said to work together, if you don't have enough people, to me it's just as important, and obviously Jimmy meant it too, is when you do have enough people. It is a game plan for us that you know the truck captain with me, and he knows and he tells the chiefs, we just got a new chief. He said anytime we go in one of these buildings, if they're hooking up to the standpipe, I know. I have to get on that fire floor because I have to let him know is the fire where they said it is. So he knows that he's staying in that stairwell. He's not changing stairwells because the callers gave their apartment and not the fire apartment. He knows the location and I have to tell him if I've got door control and he knows that is going to make every decision for us. So he's got to get up there and he tells me that I've got to get up there. I got to get up there and I've got to get you that information. I need to get up there and let you know before basically I do anything. Is it where we think it is so you know to start that, get that stretch rolling? And do I have door control so you know if you're charging it in the stairwell or you're stretching it to the apartment? So just a very coordinated operation. And the way we do it is it's two engines in a truck on that floor, but it's also two engines no matter what because we pump everything with two engines. We have one at the hydrant and one at the FTC. So our first two engines, those drivers are working together, and then their crews are working together. They know that. Coming in, it's written in the books. There's no way around it. You're hooking up to a standpipe. First two engines, they're working together. Third and fourth engines, they're working together. So, And then it's that truck coordination. It's that full team. Because I, I could be completely lost if he doesn't pass that information on to me. We might stretch from the wrong stairwell, and now we don't have enough hose where, okay, now he told me, no, it, it's in the wrong stairwell. We pick our stuff up. We go to the other stairwell. Now we're coming to the right side of the building. And uh, so that's key. And then knowing if he's got that door. That, that's going to make a, make a huge decision factor for us. So it's that coordination as the whole team, whether you have enough people to where the truck is getting up there doing their thing and passing information or if they got to help you with the stretch. Love it. Uh, absolutely love it. Same, same thing. You guys see those kind of buildings uh, popping up in the metro area around Chicago, the, you know, six, you know, five, four, six-story uh, uh, elderly mid-rises. Yeah, God, they're they're everywhere, not just in the city, you know, proper, but in the surrounding verbs as well. You know, like I said, I, it's pretty consistent with the data available, you know, 44%. Um, I know that we were just doing a, a, a training um, evolution in, uh, with Arlington uh, Heights. I was able to get invited out there with uh, Chris uh, Rymed. I uh, had a good day of training, but... Uh, this building, this office complex is going to be demolished. And guess what they're putting there? A 480-unit mid-rise apartment. 
480 <laughs> units, 480 individual responsibilities when the building is on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did want to talk about the elderly buildings because that is pretty prevalent with us. And I do want to recount one. I, I had a fire and a, a, a bid rise elderly and just food for thought is that we had a fire on the uh, uh, kitchen fire on the fifth floor. All right. The elderly people, you know, number one, they're slow getting down the stairs. So that's another consideration. Watch your fire tax stairwell. You might want to stop them or direct them to a different stairwell. But here was the thing is that my concern was this too. When the people are down in the lobby, right, and a lot of them migrate outside, make sure when you're taking out glass, make sure that they're not down there, all right? That's where they're hunkered down. Uh, That was uh, some things you don't think about when you're taking buildings in these mid-rises or, uh, you know, in high-rises, we shouldn't be. But but anyways, know where that glass is going to be falling. Uh, Healthcare facilities. Uh, I know our department, and they do an excellent job at this, is that having a, a life safety plan or the building has a pre-fire plan in the event if there's a fire, what are we doing with all these people? And they've got that pretty well mapped out and pretty well explained, but that would be something that you might want to entertain that if you get a call there, too. It says, you know, by the way, uh, if you get a fire, what is your plan? Or do you have anything in writing? I can take a copy, uh, bring it back to the firehouse and have a discussion uh, on that with, with all their ships. And you're going to kind of see that with, with nursing home facilities and hospital facilities, but more so the nursing home. A lot mm-hmm. of these nursing homes are fitting within that, that mid-rise category. Uh, for us, it's 79 feet. City of Chicago, anything built above 79 feet will have a standpipe. So sometimes they skirt the code and build a what, build a mid-rise at 78 feet, 11 inches and three quarters. <laughs> so it's it just, it, it's useful knowledge again, that you need to know is again, you, you have to address any time, you know, with mid-rise and high-rise fire, it's like a book. All right. Everyone wants to jump into chapter seven, man, of how to put this fire out and attack packages and make it the push. But we never run anything else. We haven't read the book from uh, chapter one to six to get right. you to that point. You know. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, one more thing, too, Todd, and it, it, another thing I wrote down on my red pen: be aware that the stretch may exceed the amount of holes that you're bringing up. And I'm talking about sprin- uh, sprinkler provisions could be anywhere from 200 to 250 feet between standpipe outlets. If you're coming up with 150. Uh, and you may be stretching short, my friend. So make sure you know your travel distance between outlet and outlet. Yeah, we. Uh, I think we're we're kind of grazing on that earlier, but I think it's uh, uh, something to kind of keep in mind. So the standard for us or was when I was still operating. Every engine, I don't care if you're on the first alarm. If I showed up on the fourth alarm, my guys knew to grab hose. We brought hose to every – it may never leave or enter the building, but when we showed up at command post, we had hose with us just for that reason. Because if we are short, 
the time to have the hoses and oh let me walk two blocks the north to go get the hose off my rig and then take it up to seven so i I strongly recommend that should be in everybody's policy and procedures if you're an engine company your job in life is hose and water bring hose with you have if you got bundle packages whatever you're carrying right now definitely just you know it's not a big deal throw a package on your shoulder and go and make sure you have it with you because that travel distance and again it goes back to what we said right out of the gate you got to go out and look at these buildings just because it says something doesn't always mean it's all i put my eyes on i want to be able to stretch from the if we choose wrong if the stairwell that we want to use as our attack is not tenable for some reason um, we better have the extra hose to make the extended stretch. And I kind of go, I know we had that kind of in our list about, um, you know, long stretches compared to our, you know, again, I think the majority of this fire service is, is getting better and is pretty damn good at making the stretch on the one and two story single family, but it's a whole different animal. Um, when you're stretching and you come up short in a high rise and then you better have something else coming behind you. And I think those are some things that we definitely part of that. Those training packages have to include as your travel distance um, as part of that reflex time as well. Before I can get that first, you know, drop of water out of the nozzle, I got to get the hose down to that apartment or that office or whatever the case may be. Um, so I love that you brought that back around and, and kind of remind me. I won't have you just hit something again because I want to make sure in case somebody missed what you said come out, uh, out of the NFPA standard. High-rise firefighting, what, what was that number for what the NFPA recommends? Yeah, the NFPA 1710, and this is good information, you know, to mm-hmm. use because a lot of our job is data-driven. You know, uh, data can relate the results, and especially in a positive way. Uh, but for a high-rise, a minimum uh, response profile should be 42 people, according to NFPA 1710. I agree with that. Oh, yeah, you? yeah, 100%. You know? And then 43 if the building is equipped with a fire pump. Um, and then we're, we're, we don't see anything in regards to a, a, a mid-rise, but the closest thing that I can find in relation to that is a minimum of 27 members on a garden-style apartment. Uh, and this is going to address a, a typical 1,200-square-foot unit on fire. Um, but, but again, it, it, you need people. Um, and, and again, the question, you know, hopefully if you're listening, we can start that dialogue. Uh, with yeah. Your department. Yeah. And, and all of us, uh, uh, you know, where and what we teach and uh, we all travel to the apartments that don't have 27 members on a shift, mm. you know, very well, 42. Yeah. <laughs> 42. They're at to have a complete recall and, Every every surrounding department uh, in the region to get that kind of number. So I think in in those cases, I think that goes back to some things we we're saying earlier. Um, that's got to be drilled upon now. It can't can't wait till we have fire pushing out floor five and go. What's our plan? Because right there we've lost. We've already lost the the battle because we haven't done any kind of pregame true pregame driving around the building once a week or. Something like that's not actually doing. I love what Roe and them are doing. Um, our elderly, old high-rise. When we stretched, we found we were short to the far, furthest apartment. We could we could get to the door 
but we couldn't make entry into that door. So we talked about, hey, if we have a fire here, we're bringing up two different, another stick with us or two sticks in that case with the other engine company because there's no way we're making that push if it's at the far end near the elevator. So those are some things that we definitely want to uh, definitely consider. Some of the other things, uh, we kind of going back to the problems, we, we kind of hit on inspections, door closures, damaged outlets. Um, some of the other things I think that we, and I, there's no way to account for this, but I, I want in our mental makeup when we're talking about these things is the human factor. I know uh, FDNY, they've had, you know, the obviously the Twin Parks where the door is <laughs> open or left open. Uh, a victim goes down right outside the door and blocks it open in that fashion. So some of the human, the human side of this is unpredictable things. And so we can have a 42 page SOG. We can't account for the human factor in some cases. So that's where that staffing levels and having plans. And when you have your plan, don't just plan. I'm a big, and I, I debate, I have a friend of mine, we debate this. You, you only got plan A and if plan A doesn't work, you make it work. And I disagree. A thousand percent disagree with them on this. You better have plan A, B, C, and D because plan A typically is the first thing that takes a shit. <laughs> so I'll end again. I think your first, your, you know, the story you were talking about with your line of duty death is a great example that, you know, the best laid plans and all it takes is one thing and then another thing and another thing. And you're on the plan G and you haven't even got water on the fire yet. So I think those are things we definitely want to uh, always take into consideration. What is what is Mobile's plan for the long stretch? Uh, you got fire on tw- uh, on the seventh floor, eighth floor, and the sandpipe is out of service. It's completely shot. It's you know been ran over by a you know a truck or whatever you want to say. Uh, what is your long stretch plan when you guys are pretty much? I guess the better way to put this, and, and same with uh, Captain Davis. Standpipe that complete 100% fail in the standpipe system. What are you guys doing, both departments, as far as building your own standpipe for those kind of scenarios? So, our first go to is does the stairwell have a well hole and, and get vertical using? We're going to operate out of the stairs. So, does the stairs have a well hole? Mm-hmm. Second is to create our own. Typically, we, we go to rope. Typically, we're instead of having in this situation, we do a rope stretch in this situation. We like coupling drops or this and that we we've tried to really just master one and get really good at it. Mm. Um, I can tell you like in my, my department, I, my career, I've done one coupling drop. It's just not something we do. We, we do rope because we're better with it at height than just the lower distances. So we try to be really good at how we do our rope and uh, we'll typically go that route. It's find a way to get vertical and, First, our first option is always does the stairwell have a well hole because we're going to operate out of the stairs anyway. If not, go to a window and we'll drop a rope down. Um, last case scenario would be just start wrapping hose around stairs and just committing everybody we have to getting that hose in place. But that's obviously a last resort for us. Um, we're not getting to 42 people on the first alarm. That's why we're, we're sending people quick um, to go to that second alarm on an absolute absolute worst case scenario somehow every single company there is riding with three uh, we're getting in like the mid 20s on the first alarm typically we're in the upper 20s um, maybe around 30 just depending on the staffing of the day on the first alarm so that's why we're trying to get people quick but to commit everybody to just wrap stairs would would just deplete our resources very quick so it's still to get a system where that hose is running vertical for us first is a well hole second is usually rope 
love it. And I, and I love that you said well hole. Uh, and I think uh, when you're when we talk going back to walking these buildings and walking stairs and looking at the buildings, identify if that's even an option. Um, we were in uh, I, uh, where the hell we were at. Well hole was not an option. You could not get a, a charged hose line through that well hole. You could yeah. run it flat, but you weren't going to be able to charge the damn thing. So that's where I, that's why I brought it up. What's the alternatives there for you guys? And same for Chicago. Yeah, so one, one thing we did with Let's that, start, Todd, is uh, it doesn't really, didn't impact our mid-rises. It's, it was only a high-rise project. But uh, because the city, what we started doing was we're, the city's going out and taking our high-rise buildings, and the city just paid for it. They're going to placard every FDC and bring them up to – uh, the newest NFPA standard of actually providing what what pressure to provide the FDC. So we're going to have a system where if there's no pump pressure identified at the, at the FDC, you pump 150. If it needs 151, it's going to be labeled there for you. Anything over 150 will be labeled for that pump operator right there. And in the process, I was a kind of the lead on the program. We went out and we did a couple hours or at least an hour, even in the smallest buildings. And we did a, a very detailed walkthrough pre-plan type format of on a form of those buildings where even though our project was, what's the churn pressure of the fire pump? Where's the FDCs to update some information? Uh, we put together these full-on pre-planned forms that's very just readable. It's not a diagram of the building, but it says this is where the stairwells are. This is where the FDCs are. And the chiefs can pull them up on their tablets and their in their chief's vehicles. But one of the things we noted was in every stairwell, we located where the stairwell was and we noted, you know, is the standpipe outlet in the stairwell or in the hallway? And then is there a well hole or not? So that those chiefs immediately could tell you, Hey, at this standpipe systems down, Hey, even though this stairwell might be the closer one, go to this stairwell where there's a well hole or this, you know, it was able to quickly identify where those well holes were if they were available in the building. And like that one building I talked about with the fire pump that's in that non-fire, non-waterproof vault, we know right now until they fix that, and that's in court right now, is we're going to the rear of the building if there's a fire on an upper floor because that rear stairwell is the only stairwell in the building that has a, that has a well hole. And we can get big, we get a two and a half up there supplying some lines very quickly by going to the rear. So it's information like that. And we weren't able to do every high rise in the building I don't think the city was ever going to pay the overtime for us to have a couple people doing that uh, on their off days, but we were able to at least do every high rise building. And that was one of the big pieces of information we made sure was noted on every single form was, is there a well hole and where are they? Where are the standpipe outlets? Are there PRVs? If there are, are they adjustable? And it just went down a list that if, even if it doesn't all go in the MDT information, the chiefs can pull it up on the, on the tablets in their cars and have every piece of important information about that building in front of them, just because it is the low frequency, high risk fire. That, oh, yeah. A hundred, a hundred percent. I want that same question uh, for you, captain, as far as alternative, if you know, you have a complete standpipe failure, what, is, what have you guys looked at? Uh, deck gun's not option. Standpipe's not option. What is, what's your kind of your go-to plan B, I guess. Yeah, Anthony, good point in bringing up that uh, well stretch on that. That would be my first go-to, but let's talk about some other alternatives that you might have at your disposal right now. Uh, getting back to mid-rises, you know, when they're being constructed and that they're, 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 that building's going to be eventually at a point where it's it's not vacant, but it's usable for training. I know we talked about this on the front end, but this is going to help answer the question that you have right now. 
Mm-hmm. Get into these buildings. I talked to the general manager or the project manager. Hi, we're your local fire department. Do you mind if we stretch? We have this new hose that we bought. He <laughs> says, oh, yeah, it looks old to me, but, you know, it's new hose. We want to see if we could use our holes and make sure it reaches every part of the building. Guess what? They're on board with this. They says, by all means, do it. That's the, the, the proving ground or the incubator to come up with these, these alternatives. Your plan B, your C, your D. Uh, let's highlight and do a visual painting of how about a, a rope drop or a window stretch? Dropping the rope back up and hoisting your supply. Remember, we like to separate supply from attack. So the attack packages are already up with that first company. They're getting that laid out. And then you're with another, uh, uh, the supply side is coming up the side of the building. I think the fastest and the most appropriate way for that outside of the the well stretch is uh, securing that two and a half. We use an old throwback no school like old school is the old grappling hook all right on a webbing that secures your vertical section be a little bit leery of of how much holes you're supporting with it but by all means at 50 feet coverage of five stories you you don't need to grab the coupling anything above that you might want to look into grabbing that coupling but anyway that is the fastest way there's no fat uh, no um Fancy technical rescue with knots in that. You know, how many guys are great knot tires if you're not tying knots all the time? Uh, so the claw, I wish I had pictures of the, the, to show you that, but the window drop would be somewhere. It would be idea to make the drop in a unit that's going to be your, your base of operation, which is going to be the protection of a type one interior stairwell. Times it may not always be the case. Where you know, the one thing is that firefighting deviates, uh, operations sometimes deviate from what the textbook says. But we need to look at things that says a what is the most expedient means to get the line up there. All right, yeah, we might be might be uh, against the grain of, of of common firefighting, but we need to do what's in the best interest of the people, and we need to get water on the fire. So ideally, you want to be near a stairwell. Uh, A couple other things to get out of that subject area, too, is that the flying standpipe, we hear hear about that. If you, you know, there's pros and cons. If you're going to tie up your ladder truck to use that as a flying standpipe, um, that's a decision you're going to have to make in real time based on on the variables. Are they flexible or are they non-inflexible? You know, the the, the thing is that you're tying up a truck. Okay, we, we get that. Um, but again, to answer these questions is all again, and it formulates right back into what your game plan is. What you says, if we have a fire, my first default is, do I have a well? All right. If that's not possible, then we need to look into some of the units or some of the balconies to get the lineup, but drop. Uh, rope back stretch. I like the rope back because that way you can secure the hose. You got rope with you. Yeah, we um, we've been we've played with some things here in the last uh, year or so with some different setups using using an outside setting up our own standpipe system, mm-hmm. uh, bringing up additional elbows and make the you know coming over top of balcony railings and those type of things. All incredible stuff. Um, 
that obviously requires that game planning and, and going out and doing it and then checking with guys like yourself and, and you know, throughout the country that are really starting it. In all reality, and I think that we've – I don't want to say ignored it. I think we just got so inundated with uh, these mid-rise buildings in every part of the country that I feel like it's one of those areas that we think we have a game plan, but we don't. We haven't done enough on it yet. I don't think we've done enough training, enough research, um, enough actual experience with those fires right now in the, in the majority of the country. Other, I'm sure, you know, Chicago and New York and some of these, you know, that's their bread and butter. But uh, for the majority of the fire service, that's not. It's just not an everyday fire. It's a once, maybe once every couple of years they have a fire incident in these type of buildings. But as these buildings age, as occupancies change, as uh, all these things come into play, these fires are going to become more prevalent, and we better start planning now so we don't have that tragic, tragic event um, that we all dread and we hope we don't. What I don't want to see is what typically happens in the American Fire Service. We have a tragic event, and then we react or we overreact in some cases and we haven't really taken the time that's why uh, the studies and everything and the data is just so powerful for us uh to really fire chiefs and company officers really depend on everything you know i even uh just finished building out new slides on fire fire rescue survey just that you know that data alone is is really pushing the american fire service and you know, we don't need to ignore it. We need to look at, modify to our staffing levels and our response matrices and and our construction and everything else that we have going on and really develop um, some new approaches to some things we're doing. Um, this And just so so Cap knows, uh, what I'm going to do, and I already made a note of this, is I want us to come back um, after this one kind of circulates out for a while. I want to bring in... Um, Probably Steve. I, I know it's hard to do when we do the bigger podcast to get everybody their time, but I think that um, bringing in some guys from Elkhart and some of the things that we've all been kind of working together, this subject needs to be done again. Uh, I mean, literally, we've been an hour and a half, and I don't even know if we scratched the surface. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, Todd. It's a big, big subject. Yeah, uh, I think what we've done today with our subject matter and our conversation has, has kind of opened the door. Hopefully, I think people listening will hopefully go back and look at what they're currently looking at and doing and maybe take some of the advice given by the three of us this evening about what to you know, get started. The most simplest start point is to go out of the firehouse onto the fire truck and go to the building. Start with that. Just start with something that simple, and then that gets the conversation going. I think is more important as a station boss, man. Get on the truck when you as soon as you're done listening or whatever you're doing, and go to your the first building you come to that you would consider a mid rise for your department. Um, even if you start off with a four story multifamily garden style, go look and then start throwing out scenarios. We have people trapped on three. We have fire on two. Um, and then start building off of that because some of these packages can work together at the same time. So I always do this. Um, I always want our guests to have a first shot with this uh, closing remark. That, that's my closing remark already. So you get all the firehouse and start this process today 
by going to start looking at some of your buildings. So that's my closing remark. I'm going to let uh, Cap Davis, your closing remarks for this evening. You can't pick or choose where you're going to have a fire, but the one <laughs> thing that you can do is, right, at least prepare yourself and get your men and your crew prepared uh, for things that we're expected to do and what the public expects us to do. You know, and that's a go uh, above and beyond. Uh, being an engine company, and, and it's always my default answer, we're engine companies. We need to be experts at, at, at stretching and moving water and flowing water. 100%. No, and I, I think that's the best. That should be on the back of a T-shirt. We should, you know, not half <laughs> as good. We need to be great, and we need to be experts at making those stretches, no matter what that stretch is. Uh, Captain Rowett. I think the, my closing remark is just to realize this isn't just a, the mid-rises and, and even the podium construction stuff we talked about today, but the stuff we talked about isn't just a big city problem. It's not just an urban area problem. These are all over the place. Everybody's going to run into them. And if you don't have them, your mutual aid probably does if you run mutual aid. So understand this is coming to you and you're going <laughs> to have to be prepared for it. So, And if you're in that department where you don't think this is something you're dealing with, is what you need to train on because you do run it even if it's mutual aid. And if you don't even know you have it, you don't you're not ready for the stretch to change from what you're used to. This is something you got to go out and practice and get good at so that when you add that anxiety level, you're not making mistakes. You're you're operating the way you're you're wanting to. Yeah. It, it, if you have a four-story uh holiday garden in, you have the challenges already and you're and everybody's got them. I don't care, like you said. Urban, suburban, everybody's got them. And most of us have the combination of all of it together from the, the what we consider, you know, a skyscraper at 40 or 50 stories to the 10, 15, 20 story buildings are just everywhere popping up all around us. So uh, we better start preparing now before we end up uh, having a conversation about uh, a tragic event. I don't want us to have that conversation. I want us to be ahead of that curve right now. Uh, Captain, I cannot. Uh, I, I will be in touch soon. We will definitely be talking more about some of these things. Um, uh, I know there's a host of things going on all over the country about some of the things we just talked about, and I'm looking forward to working on this even more and in more depth over the next year or so. So, cannot thank you enough for um, spending you know the time with us out of your busy schedule with us today and sharing your knowledge and and hopefully. Somebody's going to pick something up that we said tonight, especially coming from you, who's been in these fires and have seen the good and the bad with these things. And so I just I personally thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us today. Thank you. Yeah, for same having thing, me Jimmy. Thank, thank you for your time, brother. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us and being a part of this. And uh, now 100% appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. If you can stop record for a second there and keep everybody on just for two seconds, yep. Captain Rowett.